Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. This is Charlotte Talks. I'm Mike Collins. South Carolina's influence on our national politics is growing. That state played a major role in saving candidate Joe Biden's presidential campaign in 2020. And as a kind of reward, Democrats will move their first primary to the Palmetto State beginning with this campaign cycle, if they have a primary. Meanwhile, Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley has already announced her intention to run in the Republican primaries for 2024. She may soon be joined by that state's Republican Senator Tim Scott. Both have already made appearances in Iowa, Iowa, which is always a sign that politicians are running or about to run for president. We are early in the 2024 election process, but South Carolina appears poised to play a leading role. So how might that change what the country looks like? We're exploring that this hour with Scott Huffman, director of the Center for Public Opinion and Policy Research and professor of political science at Winthrop University. Welcome back. Good morning. Good morning. And Joseph Bustos is with us. He covers politics and state government for the state newspaper in Columbia. Joseph, thanks for joining us again. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Scott, I'm starting with you. Is it an exaggeration to say that the Democratic Party's decision to hold their first primary in South Carolina is a way of thanking that state for their help in making Joe Biden's candidacy viable and for thanking Jim Clyburn, Clyburn, the representative from that state, for the role he played in saving that candidacy? I, I don't think it's an exaggeration, especially when you added the the Clyburn aspect to it. Joe Biden has, you know, had had a growing relationship with South Carolina in general over the years. He would they would come and vacation in South Carolina, and you know, and as you alluded to earlier, his candidacy was really on the rocks as he was coming into South Carolina. It was at that point put up or shut up. He wasn't uh, going to continue as truly viable afterwards. The Democrats were looking for anyone who could beat uh, Donald Trump. And coming into South Carolina, uh, getting that bump from Joe Clyburn kind of meant everything because that was what African-Americans who were going to be voting in the, the Democratic presidential primary in South Carolina were looking for. Um, and that was sort of the, the tip off of, you know, this is the, the anointed one from Jim Clyburn. So all of the, the Democrats in, in South Carolina said, OK, we were, we were looking for a sign. And that sign came not from God, but from Jim Clyburn. The Hill says that the Democrats' South Carolina strategy, making them first in the order of the, the primaries, empowers all black voters. They say, quote, black voters in South Carolina account for more than 60 percent, six zero percent of the state's Democratic turnout. But they've had to wait too long to have a say in the primary process. Could this change things for the nation? Because black voters will be heard first. I'll start with well, Scott, then I, I want to hear from Joseph on this. 
you know, for the Democratic Party, and, and we'll talk about the Republicans as well, South Carolina is actually an incredibly important test for, for both parties. But as you mentioned, African-Americans make up over 60% of the, the presidential Democratic primary vote, and actually African-American women are the crown jewel. They make o over half of that. And so coming into South Carolina is the first test of African-American support. Iowa, the Iowa caucuses are 97% white. New Hampshire, overwhelmingly white um, and, you know, and very conservative. They're controlled by Republicans now, which will affect this this calendar change. But this is the first real test in South Carolina of African-American support. So it's the first test of a candidate who can get African-American support nationally and no Democratic president is going to go into office without a coalition between liberal white voters and African-American Democratic voters who are still over 90 percent Democratic. Of course, Joseph, black voters are not a monolith. And just because African-American voters in South Carolina may like candidate A, that doesn't mean people in Arizona, black voters in Arizona will like candidate A. So how could that could this have an impact on who the uh, Democrats ultimately cho choose, and therefore on who may or may not win the election. Well, South Carolina has a history of picking who eventually gets onto yeah. the ticket. Since 1992, the winner of the South Carolina nominating contest has gone on to either win the nomination or be on the ticket for the nomination. The, the one time where the winner of the of the South Carolina contest did not make did not win the nomination was in 2004. John Edwards won that won that primary, he ended up as John Kerry's running mate. So South Carolina has a history of being able to pick out who actually uh, can actually win the nomination at the end. And as you point out, Scott, Iowa has always gone first. Iowa is, I don't know what it exactly is, but it's probably 99% white. <laughs> it, is, it is not a good uh, uh, or a representation of voters overall this Ab helps absolutely not and not only that uh, neither is a caucus a caucus <laughs> uh, doesn't doesn't look like the electorate at all so you think of uh you know what we do a primary voters show up to vote I know that sounds crazy talk these days but that's what happens however in a primary it's still the more committed voters in a caucus, it's even worse because caucus sites are held. They can be held at somebody's house if that's a caucus site, at a school, at a church. You have to show up. You have to stand around for hours. And there are talks from candidate supporters. You separate into different corners of the room of the building where, you know, if you're candidate hasn't gotten enough support to be viable for that precinct, there's then a time to wait while other candidate supporters can try and poach you. Now, if this sounds crazy, it is. Uh, it, and it is not a great representation of how voting is going to work. These right. are not even your everyday passionate voters. These are the most committed party activist. So not only is it not representative demographically, as you said, it's not even representative of the party itself. And for whatever reason, the last election cycle, Iowa had great difficulty in determining the winner of those caucuses. It took a long time. I think Joe Biden was giving his inaugural address before they uh, <laughs> finished counting uh, the votes out there. Did that play a role in this just because it held things up for so long? 
Yeah, Democrats have a problem ditching uh, traditions. It's sort of, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, it's been traditional for them to do it that way. It doesn't make a lot of sense to continue either the format or the location. So, Joseph, CNN reported in December that South Carolina Representative Jim Clyburn was a bit surprised, even, quote, stunned to learn of Biden's efforts to reshape the 2024 presidential nominating calendar to make South Carolina the first state to hold a primary, stripping Iowa of that honor in a year in which one, possibly two Republicans from South Carolina could be running on the other side of the ticket. Did that figure into this? The fact that it looked pretty, pretty sure that Nikki Haley was going to run and Tim Scott's been rumored for months. I don't know how much... Uh, having Nikki Haley and possibly Tim Scott uh, on the presidential campaign trail played a role into uh, Democrats or Biden even recommending South Carolina go first. It's more about, hey, South Carolina has a lot of black voters, but it's also cheap to campaign in South Carolina. We have very cheap media markets to campaign here. So, um, and you also have, it's, uh, I think, Clyburn says it best. It's a microcosm of America. You've got tourism on the coast. You've got manufacturing in the upstate. Uh, and you've got a very large military presence here in South Carolina. So you've got a little bit of everything. You've got agriculture as well. So it's more of just what South Carolina represents. It's cheap to campaign here. It's actually easy to get around if you don't count how bumpy the roads are, but just in terms of time <laughs> to get around the state. Uh, so it, it, it makes those campaigns that don't have the big money behind them actually give them it gives them a chance to to gain some traction plus it's a less expensive media market state yeah. it doesn't cost uh what it costs in in major markets to advertise on television even in south carolina in most instances. well one slight exception about that is to saturate the south carolina media market you, you have to buy all across north carolina and georgia as well so that, you know, that adds to the cost, but certainly not a New York cost. Um, Democrats need a broad coalition and have traditionally had a broader coalition than perhaps Republicans have. So that that probably plays a role in this, too, Joseph. It seems to me that a quarter of the population of South Carolina is African-American. If you're a Democratic candidate coming to run there, you have to speak to the issues that concern that voting constituency the most, maybe even make promises to them. That filters out to the rest of the country. Is that where also this could have an impact on uh, primaries beyond South Carolina, you've already made your stand there. You got to keep going. Well, let's look at what Biden said during the primary. He said he would nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court the next time there was an opening. Uh, and he'd said that during, a, I believe, during a debate here in South Carolina. Uh, there's an opening that comes up on the Supreme Court. He nominates Katanji Brown Jackson to the Supreme Court. Uh, Clyburn held him to it. And uh, that's something that black voters really care about. You have representation on the highest court in the land. I mean, now I'll know how important the Supreme Court could be following the Roe v. Wade decision. So if candidates come, Democratic candidates come and they make these promises, uh, this is no longer uh, we don't longer operate in a vacuum. We have a national media. This spreads across the country. So is this setting the stage, Scott, I guess, for people in other states, African-Americans, particularly in other states, to say, hey, that's the guy I like because of what he said in South Carolina. And, that, yeah, and they were first. 
it's really just uh, amplifying that. That was that was already kind of true. I mean, that that filtered out because we were the first in the South. We were not we you know the we were not the first primary. New Hampshire is the first primary. We weren't the first contest. Iowa's the the caucuses are the first contest. But we again were the first test of African American support. And as you pointed out, Democrats have to have that coalition. So that message was getting out. But this absolutely puts a, a you know a bullhorn to to the mouth of the candidate that what they say is is going to be broadcast and the closer Nevada uh, is to South Carolina in the test you're going to have the Democrats being um, you know testing support among African Americans testing support among Latino Hispanic voters and that those two together are really going to begin to define the messages of a candidate who can survive the Democratic presidential primary process. And as Joe pointed out, it, if they make promises, they're going to be held to them. So uh, African-Americans in South Carolina have generally been credited with saving Joe Biden's candidacy the first time around. And yet nationally, we are told that a lot of black Americans are unhappy with Joe Biden because he didn't do some of the things they hoped he would do in the first two years, like work on voting rights, which are under attack in a lot of different places. You conduct the Winthrop poll, Scott. Have you done any polling to see how South Carolina African-Americans still feel about Joe Biden? There, it's, it's very similar to the rest of the nation. His popularity is not overwhelming. African-Americans do support Biden. They support Biden more, obviously, than the South Carolina white population, which is, you know, two-thirds uh, extremely conservative. But you're absolutely right. Uh, support is not monolithic. Uh, a lot of this was, you know, again, who does Jim Clyburn think can beat this guy, Donald Trump? Um, and that is the most important thing. Please do not forget, Joe Biden had been running for president since the 80s. Um, and the Democratic Party had been looking at him and going, yeah, no thanks. Um, until, of course, he then is Obama's vice president and African-American voters, oh, maybe this guy isn't so bad, but I don't know. He comes in, he is not riding at the top of the ticket. So Jim Clyburn really did put the cap on that. We're not going to ignore the Republican side of this these primaries coming up because we have two Republicans probably running in that race. We'll get to that in a moment at Charlotte Talks on WFAE. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte. Using Mazda's customer-centric approach to cars to create a car buying and servicing experience where the customer is the center of their business. More at MazdaOfSouthCharlotte.com. In Charlotte Talks on listener-funded 90.7 WFAE and WFAE.org. I'm Mike Collins. We're here with Dr. Scott Huffman, Professor of Political Science and Director of the Center for Public Opinion and Policy Research at Winthrop University in Rock Hill. Joseph Bustos is also with us. He reports on politics and state government for the state newspaper in Columbia. Joseph, is anybody in South Carolina talking about any presidential candidates at this point other than Joe Biden and the few Republicans who we know are also in the race? Are they mumbling about other potential candidates that they are interested in? Uh, let's see. Well, we have three main declared, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy. I'll mention him first, get that out of the way. Donald Trump and Nikki Haley. And then there's of course, Mike Pence has come to the state several, several times. I'm pretty sure at some point he could have a punch card and get a free donut somewhere. Um, 
you've got, um, uh, of course, Tim Scott, uh, who's also going to, who's potentially going to be running. I think that's the, the big name out, another big name out there, the South Carolina Senator, the only black Republican in the U.S. Senate. Those are some of the big names. Are big and the names other Democrats being rumored or talked uh, about? Uh, we have Marianne Williamson, who's declared, <laughs> but I'm not sure if anyone else is thinking about jumping in as long as Joe Biden runs right. again and all indications are he will probably run, but he's yet to announce. So we'll see if he doesn't, if he decides not to run, then we'll start seeing a bunch more names that can pop up. We've had Kamala Harris visit several times. Pete Buttigieg has been here. Several members of Biden's cabinet have been here during his presidency, but I think as long as Biden is going to run, we may not see too many names actually jump in. Scott, uh, there was a, there's an aspect of these primaries that we haven't what we kind of alluded to, and that is the monetary aspect. When primaries are held in a state, a lot of money gets pumped into that state through advertising and campaign uh, staffs coming through and staying at hotels and the museum, uh, the uh, media following them along. Uh, it will also mean in South Carolina that black voters there, we talked a little bit about this, will be driving the conversation early in the contest, uh, pushing issues that impact them, that interest them, and pushing the candidates who seem to favor those issues to the forefront of this contest. If that were to happen and candidates embrace those things, I would think that would change the country a bit. Would that be helpful? or hurtful to the Democrats and or the Republicans? Well, it would it could certainly fire up the Republicans, especially to the point that, um, you know, the Democrats start talking about the eroding of, you know, freedoms for LGBTQ communities and, you know, the, the banning of, of woke books and things like that. Um, however, you got to remember, African-American voters um, are, you know, conservative voters in, in general. They are more conservative on issues such as same-sex marriage, um, such as things, you know, anything sort of related to that. So it's not like the candidates on the Democratic side are going to, you know, come in and and spew the most liberal things, the Bernie Sanders type things, and win over African-American voters. Uh, however, I think to your point, race will be kind of there in the forefront. And that is going to kind of subtly under, you know, the, the dog whistle level, bring out some of the, the rhetoric that we might hear on the Republican side. But there are a bunch of uh, Republican, particularly Republican controlled states. Well, totally Republican controlled states that are working to restrict voting rights and voting hours and making it more difficult to vote. And there are those who would say, and I think it's relatively transparent, that that is an effort to suppress voters who are less likely to vote Republican. And in that group, you would find African-Americans. So if you give them a greater voice early in the process, does that have an impact? Well, it, it could, it, but it, that also can kind of be part of a larger theme, and that goes back to the dog whistle nature of it. That just gives a continued excuse to say we have to protect the vote. You know, the vote is not uh, it legitimate. We we still hear people talking about the uh, the you know the the fake vote from the last presidential election. Well, they're delusional because so, that's a lie. Right. Yes, and you are correct, but. That doesn't change the fact that that is still the rhetoric to win the hearts of a certain segment of voters. And so when you have a larger African-American voice, and as you said, a lot of these attempts to restrict uh, a voter turnout is meant to hurt the Democratic side a little more. 
then the rhetoric of secure the ballot box becomes more important. But it is also a slightly veiled, um, you know, rhetoric, but it's still truly dog whistle rhetoric that will come to the forefront. That's the kind of thing the the Ron DeSantis's who are trying to you know take the flag from from Trump and run as a Trumpian candidate without Trump's problems are are going to start echoing. Joseph, uh, if the president runs again, and it's not clear that he will, but it looks fairly certain that he intends to run again, there won't be any primaries on the Democratic side. Therefore, Democrats going first in South Carolina becomes a moot point. Um, Is this locked in? In other words, if there are no primaries in this cycle, would South Carolina go first in 2028? So what Biden has said, as recommended, is that we Democrats look at this every four years, evaluate it every four years, who should be first, evaluate the order. Now, there won't be a competitive primary in 2024 if Biden runs our highly competitive primary. But I think you probably still see the Democrats possibly go through the exercise of holding one because mm. South Carolina would probably want to prove, yeah, we would like to have be first in 2028. And we would like to show that we could still bring a lot of voters out to the polls, even when the president's on the ballot. So um, I, I think to a certain degree, we probably will still have the process of it um, come 2024, but it, we're going to have to look at the process every four years anyways, look at the order every four years, see who yeah, should the national, the national party has the ability in, in its rules to change that. And, you know, let's be honest that whoever is looking at, you know, rising on the, the democratic side uh, towards 2028, if they really see that, Hey, South Carolina is to my disadvantage and their mm-hmm. supporters can get a bigger voice in the democratic national, you know, party rules, then it could change. You might see, for example, somebody who would rise more if there were more of a Latino Hispanic vote. And then, you know, maybe Nevada goes first or at least before us. But every Democratic candidate, even going into 2028, is going to realize that to win the presidency, you need that biracial coalition and the African-American test in South Carolina is important. Now, you know, we've been talking about the Republicans. We're a stunningly important test for Republicans as well. And we are the first in the South for Republicans. Obviously, we're not the first primary caucus, and they cannot change the rules this time. They have already passed, you know, their order, and it can't be changed this time. It could be changed before 2028. But in South Carolina, we have always had this blend of conservatism, and it used to be almost geographical, where you, you know, down in the, the low country, you'd have the more fiscal conservatives. In the upstate, you had the more evangelical conservatives. And in the Midlands, you'd have a mixture kind of a business conservatives. And in the PD region, no conservatives, or, you know, it's mostly African-American. Um, but, you know, you come to South Carolina, And you've just come out of Iowa, where, again, only the activists among the activists of the Republicans who do not represent the Republican Party have voted, do New Hampshire, where it's a certain flavor of conservatism. And we are the first test of all flavors of conservatism. And ever since the first primary on the Republican side in 1980, whoever won the Republican presidential primary in South Carolina went on to be at the top of the ticket for the Republicans, except the one time Newt Gingrich won in South Carolina. But other than that, 
The same thing is true on the Democratic side, except right. for John Edwards. Every uh, pick in the South Carolina primary has gone to be uh, the Democratic Party's nominee and get the majority of the popular vote. So could it be argued with both of these factors, Republican and Democrat, that South Carolina has already been playing an outsized role in choosing presidents? I've been saying that for years. And as you know, so South why? Carolinian. Tell me why. Well, because <laughs> Joe and I live in South Carolina, and that, okay. of course, makes it far more important than any other. But, you know, to the, to the back to the main points we've been hitting, we are the for the Democrats. We are the first test of that biracial coalition that is absolutely necessary for Republicans. We're the first test of every flavor of conservatism that they need to win over. And we are in the South. So let's take a second to think about that. If you take the former Confederacy, the 11 state South, if you sweep the 11 state South, you need less than 30% of the electoral college votes of the entire rest of the nation, the entire rest of the nation. So if you're the type of Republican who can win in South Carolina, you're the type of Republican who can sweep the South. And that gives you a leg up. And if you're the type of Democrat who can win strongly in South Carolina, then you're the type of Democrat who can crack the South. No Democratic president, no Democrat at the nominated for president has won the presidency in the modern era without cracking the modern South. So it's, you know, the biracial coalition for the Democrats, the test of all the flavors of conservatism for the Republicans, and the showing the ability to win in the South for both parties. So, Joseph, uh, let's switch gears and focus a little bit uh, on, on the Republican side here for a moment. Nikki Haley, the former governor of South Carolina, uh, telegraphed, well, she's, she's declared her candidacy. She has declared to her candidacy quite clearly. She was elected to two terms as South Carolina governor. She left in the second term to go be the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations in the Trump administration. How well liked is Nikki Haley in the, in the state? I think she's pretty well pop, still popular here in South Carolina. I think uh, Scott had a, uh, there was a poll done last year where she had a pretty high favorability rating uh, here in South Carolina. Uh, she's, again, she spent six years as governor. Her, the big highlight uh, was, uh, was when they brought down the Confederate flag. She helped provide cover for conservative uh, Republicans who did not want to see that flag come down. Um, in the wake of the uh, shooting in Charleston, the church shooting at Mother Emanuel Church. So she is well-liked here in South Carolina. Her campaign kickoff was a packed event in Charleston. Uh, she had a loud ovation. And you, you put that side-by-side with President Donald Trump's invitation-only event at the State House here in Columbia, where it wasn't that many people. Granted, it was invitation-only. And the fire marshal did shut it off after a sharing point. Um, so she, she is going, she is, uh, popular here in the state. Who's more popular, Donald Trump or Nikki Haley I th- or Ron DeSantis for that? Well, <laughs> if you look at it from some polling shows, Trump is leading or there's, I think one poll, that, uh, one recent poll in the last couple of months that showed DeSantis was leading, uh, when everyone, uh, when you had all of them in the, in the poll, um, I think Trump is probably more popular, maybe more popular right now because he's the former president and he was in the race back in November. Nikki Haley only got in in February. Uh, so she has Trump 
if the primary was held today, Trump probably would win, but he doesn't have a, a large majority. He doesn't even, I think he only has a plurality of the sport. Prior, let, me, let, me, let me jump in and, and give a little bit of, of, of background of the growth of, of kind of Nikki Haley's popularity. You got to remember when she was running for governor, she was fourth out of four. In, in the primary, completely unknown. You know, the, the derogatory term is a backbencher in the legislature. And then Sarah Palin, the, the queen of the Tea Party, came in and uh, anointed Nikki Haley as the new queen of the Tea Party. And she leapt to the front of that pack for Republicans running for president, ended up in a runoff and winning the presidency. So she had been anointed as you know as this new Tea Party conservative. She won the election for governor. But People didn't know her. So, uh, you know, when we put out our very first approval rating polls for her, her approval rating was much higher than her disapproval rating. So she was popular, but that was among people who had an opinion. We had a stunning number of people who had no opinion of her as governor in our first polls because she was an unknown. She got in on that uh, sort of anointing from Sarah Palin. But over her time as governor, she became a very popular governor. She showed her her Tea Party conservative credentials. Joe alluded to the the point where, you know, she was seen as, you know, important in bringing down the Confederate flag off of the state house dome, and the national press has picked up on that to make it look like, oh, Nikki Haley is a moderate compared to Trump. She is absolutely not a moderate. Um, you know, her bona fides as a conservative are very strong. She is one of the most, she and Tim Scott, and we'll talk about in a minute, have gone back and forth as the most popular Republicans among Republicans in the state. And when we did a poll back in November asking, should Nikki Haley run for president, 51% of Reg, of registered voters who identified as Republicans said, yes, she should. I think well, Nick, one, one lawmaker even once described Nikki Haley to me as Tea Party before the Tea Party. So <laughs> that's her conservative bona fides. Well, Nikki Haley once said that if Donald Trump ran again, she would not. Well, she's flip-flopped on that. She's clearly running. She has declared her candidacy. What Which impact- is strange because politicians usually don't lie, but please go ahead. <laughs> yeah. What impact, if any, has that had on either her popularity or people's trust in what she says? No, nobody cares about stuff. You know, that the, the trust part's utterly irrelevant because all you always have cover to say, you know, things have changed. Um, you know, I, I love Donald Trump. I was very Trumpian, but, you know, things have evolved and you look at what's going on. And most importantly, I prayed about it. And when I prayed, I really felt that that I, that I should run and that you should give me money to run. That's that's absolutely easy to say, and that is the first thing that comes out of the mouth of everyone who quote unquote flip flops on whether or not they're going to run. You're so cynical, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Joseph, uh, South Carolina Senator, Junior Senator Tim Scott, also considering getting into the race. How do voters there regard him? Again. Uh, as Scott mentioned, he is probably one of the most popular, if not the most popular elected official in the state of South Carolina, the state's only black Republican. Uh, I was at a GOP event in Charleston the day after Nikki Haley announced where, uh, so Tim Scott was speaking at this Republican event. And I think he had some Democrats show up at this uh, Republican event where they're honoring Black History Month. He has, uh, he is, has worked on police reform uh, in the Senate. 
So he brings that perspective of, of, of a black man on the Republican side. So he is very popular around here. Very but he's quickly. also very, very conservative overall. He's voted with Trump 91% of the time. So he sort of is getting to, to play both sides of the coin, as Joe's pointed out. I may not have time to get an answer to this question. I'll pose it and get an answer after the break, because South Carolina, it seems to me, has had a lot of influential political figures down through the course of history. Thomas Pinckney, I believe, was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. You have John C. Calhoun in the Civil War era. And then you move forward to Strom Thurmond, now Lindsey Graham, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott. Uh, how do you explain this? How do you explain this, Scott? I have 20 seconds. Uh, well, don't forget what Pettigrew said about South Carolina. It's uh, too small for a republic and too large for an insane asylum. And I think we'll, we'll discuss that after the break. <laughs> well, North Carolina is a valley of humility between two mountains of conceit. That would be Virginia and South Carolina. <laughs> we have to take a break. <laughs> We're coming back with more. It's Charlotte Talks on WFAE. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, incorporating Mazda's customer-centric vehicle design by making the customer the center of business to create a better car buying experience. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. It's Charlotte Talks on WFAE and WFAE.org. I'm Mike Collins. Dr. Scott Huffman joins us from Winthrop University. Joseph Bustos reports on politics and state government for the state newspaper in Columbia. And we're talking about South Carolina's influence on national politics and what that may, how that may change, if at all, if the Democrats hold their first primary there and more, given the fact that Nikki Haley is running for president on the Republican side and Tim Scott may soon join her. Nikki Haley was the first Indian American to hold a cabinet position. She was the first Indian American governor of South Carolina. I believe she was the first female governor, governor of South Carolina. All the presidents to date have been men. All but one have been white. There have been no women, though several have run. With her bona fides, uh, does she have the wind at her back? Or among Republican voters, at least, does gender still matter? Scott? Well, you, you know, uh, some colleagues and I, it's Chris Cooper, who you frequently have on, several of us and Gibbs Knotts have looked at uh, voting for Nikki Haley and voting and support for Tim Scott. And so a lot of folks uh, who are listening thinking, you know, how how is the Republican Party, a conservative white party at this point, especially in the South, uh, electing minorities and women to these offices? And what we found is, you know, conservative whites uh, or the ones, you know, they were dem they used to be Democrats. They were the ones who wanted to keep slavery. After the Civil War, the, the conservative whites were Democrats who wanted to keep Jim Crow. Um, you know, after the Civil Rights Movement, the conservative whites began migrating in the South to the Republican Party. So now the Republican Party is definitely conservative white. So why are they supporting minorities? And the answer is it's not so much uh, of whether they're black, white, or brown. It's how red they are on the inside. So the real test of, you know, purity you know, back in the, the, you know, racist days, it was, you talked about the purity of the bloodline. Now it's about the purity of your conservatism. And to the degree, as Joseph said, uh, Nikki Haley was Tea Party before Tea Party was cool. Uh, uh, and, you know, Tim Scott is seen as an extremely conservative. So they are seen but as- is the, the MAGA exception. coalition, I'm sorry, Scott, is the MAGA coalition yeah. conservative? Really conservative? Yeah. 
by definition. No, but the but the America First Coalition is. There's a ton of overlap between those two. Um, but the America First Coalition has a lot of overlap with MAGA. MAGA is a different entity with a lot of Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism runs uh, through all flavors of conservatism at this point. It doesn't override all of them, but it's an important part. And both especially Tim Scott, but Nikki Haley can lean into the uh, uh, Christian nationalism, and both of them get that conservative purity stamp of approval. I'm wondering, Joseph, if we're making too much out of the candidacy of Nikki Haley. Certainly she's from South Carolina, and that's right here, so we're, we're talking about it. Tim Scott may run. We're talking about it. But when you look at the Republican frontrunners, they are Donald Trump, and Ron DeSantis. I think Nikki Haley polls nationally at about 1%. Are we kidding ourselves here? Uh, depends who you ask. I mean, it's that's one of the reasons why she got in so early is to raise her profile. And I think a Quinnipiac, Quinnipiac University poll showed a vast majority of Republican voters didn't know enough about her, about whether they would view her favorably or unfavorably. So that helps get her in. That's one of the reasons why she would get in so early. Um, some could say that this is a, a run for the vice presidency or put her on the, the map for a vice presidential nod. Um, she'll prop, she's gonna act like she's in it to win this and she's always been underestimated her entire political career. She's, she's never, never lost, lost an election. She's never lost an election, but no one gave her a chance early in her first governor's race. So, or, or even when she first ran for the state house, she beat a 30 year incumbent when she, when she first got into the state house. So, this is, I mean, she's building off of that. She's banking off no one uh, takes her seriously or everyone's always underestimating her. And, and Scott talked a moment ago about uh, conservatism and having conservative uh, bona fides being the most important thing. But Donald Trump started a movement, Joseph, Make America Great Again. Many people puzzled over what exactly that meant during the 2016 presidential campaign, and it kind of emerged over the last six years as to what it means. And maybe he didn't intend it to mean this. I don't know. There's no way to tell. But the people who follow it, I think, can be printed in, with the racist brush in many cases, not all, because uh, it, it means a lot of things to a lot of people. But MAGA has racial overtones that cannot be denied. So Trump put racial resentment into the forefront of uh, American politics, intentionally or not. How did Nikki Haley reconcile that? How did Tim Scott reconcile that, Joseph? I, I, I think Nikki Haley always banks on that she is uh, Indian American. And her parents, she grew up in a small town where it was she was probably the one brown person in town. Uh, talking, I, mean, I was reading through her book where she was in this pageant and she was the only Indian uh, in the pageant that they didn't know where to put, <laughs> put her in, in the pageant. So uh, I, I, I think that's one of she has her family. She always talks about how hard her family worked. And Tim Scott, he came from a single mom, right? he had a single, single parent household. And he has always talked about opportunity and how America has moved forward. Uh, and that's how they, I think, reconcile some of the racial differences and yet well, let, Donald... me, let me lean into mike some you know the some of the the racist rhetoric that that you know people put out when you are talking to a racist and unfortunately those of us in the south do this on occasion a lot of times they will 
denigrate an entire race, but pick somebody out and say, see, that's a good one. Why can't people be like that? And that is a grotesquely racial sentiment, but it is also used as an example of, you know, here is somebody who is is like uh, a model minority. And so I think a lot of folks, and again, this goes to the underestimation of Nikki Haley is, Joseph said there was a, a pageant for white girls, a pageant for black girls. Uh, where where did Nikki Haley get put? And she's had to deal with that her entire life. But she is also seen um, among some, probably with this uh, uh, MAGA label that you've talked about, as the model minority that, you know, this is the future. If we're going to have minorities in any type of position, ones who vote and behave like this are the kind to have. And again, that's as racist as anything, but I think the, the folks that you're talking about probably have a little bit of that sentiment if they're willing to support. And when they get behind the, the veil of the ballot box, would they pull that lever? Probably not. There's another element to Trumpism, uh, aside from whatever racial overtones might be there, and, and that is he, he seems to have, uh, lean into the politics of grievance, and certainly the politics of denial, the big lie being one of the biggest denials, although there were lies throughout his uh, time in office. Uh, she wants to bring people together. So what has she said about the big lie? What has Tim Scott said about the big lie? Scott. Well, you know, her thing about bringing people together, she's leaning back into the after the Mother Emanuel massacre, and she has that chapter in her life saying she's done this. She did not lean into um, the big lie, and she did not uh, jump on the bandwagon of, oh, these these poor people from January 6th, they're being persecuted. And neither and Tim Scott at the time, you know, said this is this is wrong. He did not speak out in favor of the January 6th you know, either. And again, these are some of the things that separate them from Trump and among the people who liked Trump, but do not want to go full MAGA. Uh, you know, the, you say, hey, Tim Scott, he voted 91% with Trump. That's the kind of thinking I want, but he's not bonkers. And he's not, you know, saying the January 6th folks who invaded, who were domestic terrorists, who invaded the Capitol, he's not saying they were right. So they're distancing themselves at the proper points, not leaning into the big lie, not overly supporting the January 6th folks, but still having enough Trumpism to win over some of those folks. Again, not the truly passionate. Joseph, uh, Scott, I believe, mentioned that uh, Nikki Haley's not a true moderate. Uh, Teresa Cosby agrees with him. She's a professor of political science at uh, Furman University. She said that Haley is often mistaken for a moderate. She also adds that the battle is between Republicans in the primaries, and you don't pay any penalty for playing to that extreme right ideology that is replicated at the national level in states like Florida and Texas. I don't know whether she's extreme as some Republican candidates, but will she have to become more so in order to get the attention of Republican voters in the primaries? To a certain degree, she might. We'll see how how that works out. I, mean, I think you have South Carolina voters, all, vote, all primary voters want to see someone who could win. So if you have to move to the right, you may have to play some of these extreme views. I don't, we've seen her say no, no foreign aid to countries that are that are against America. She's out there with 
she brought up the competency test during her uh, her kickoff uh, her kickoff speech, which I found very interesting. Uh, a competency test, a mental exam for anyone who's uh, over seventy five, uh, which would apply to Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. I found that really funny because in the Democrat the Democratic governor uh, the, the race for governor last year, the Democratic nominee Joe Cunningham said anyone over 72 shouldn't be allowed to be a politician. He lost by 18 points. So I don't know how well this competency test will actually play amongst voters. Uh, I get where she's trying to go, but it, we'll see. In, in you know, the she, video. Does, she is running to the right on, on a lot of these social issues that are sort of below the level of race. The, she's leaning into the anti-woke um, you know, rhetoric. Uh, you know, I, I think we're, we'll see her run to the right on issues like you know drag queens and and whatever other you know bizarre dog whistle flags are being thrown up there and again the american primary and general election system is why so many americans experience this political schizophrenia is like wait is this person a moderate is this person extremist you have to run further to the left for the democrats further to the right for the republicans to win the nomination then come the general election you have to say i was just kidding Uh, i am actually more of a centrist and a moderate and the reason they win doing that is the the people in the middle the independents who could go either way weren't really paying that close attention during the the primary what would a nikki haley republican candidacy or a tim scott republican candidacy bring to the table or offer voters that a ron DeSantis or a donald trump does not well the first thing i I, as a south carolinian looking at this i kind of want them both to get in just because i want to watch this Um, but you're also going to see the Republican Party in South Carolina being subtly under the under the table because they don't want to be seen as attacking each other, certainly not at first. Um, they're going to be trying to divide loyalties among conservatives and among Republicans in South Carolina, both in terms of endorsements. Nikki Haley's already got the endorsements of 5th District Congressman Ralph Norman. He jumped on, on her bandwagon immediately. They are going to be fighting over endorsements and money in South Carolina and what they can try and bring to the table is something you've mentioned repeatedly, Mike, is electability. They're going to argue that they have similar beliefs to a DeSantis, they, uh, but they're not as uh, seen as extreme nationally. Our ideas are right there with him, but he, we're not as divisive as he is. And, of course, that they don't have the you know massive barge load of baggage that, that Trump has. Well, I was going to ask, because the primary system – makes people play to the extremes of their parties, whether you're a Democrat playing to the left or a Republican playing to the right. But there are, I would think, a bunch of Republicans who are longing for a return to normalcy or something resembling normalcy. Is anybody playing to that? And from what, Joseph, you know about Nikki Haley or Tim Scott, would they be uniquely positioned to be able to do that if elected? Maybe. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I will preface this. I got to South Carolina in 2019, so I wasn't covering Nikki okay. Haley during her governor's race. Well, I, so I'll, I'll preface that. So maybe we'll see how they do. Uh, Haley will talk about how she was able to bring, the, bring people together uh, after the Mother Emanuel shooting. So that's something she's been able to do. Tim Scott will say he's worked with the other side when it comes to police reform. Well, Scott, so possibly. 
very, you've been here a longer time. You've conducted polls, you, and, and you've watched Nikki Haley as governor. You've seen Tim Scott as a senator. What's your answer to that question? Well, you know, Nikki Haley could be as or more conservative than Donald Trump, and it would still be seen as a return to normalcy. Uh, you know, it was an absolute circus. I don't care if you're a Democrat or a Republican. Um, you know, I'm not slighting the uh, the party, but the Trump presidency was a, a an absolute circus all the time. You talked about the politics of grievance. Um, there was always an angry tweet. There was always something flared up out of out of nothing. You know, so many mountains were built that you know we all had to buy climbing gear just to get in and study the politics of the time. But so a return to normalcy as a a leader. They could still be extremely conservative on one side and still be a return to normalcy. Aside from gerrymandering and attempts at voter suppression, the primary system seems to be one of the forces that push candidates to the extremes on both parties. And, and, and it leads to the lack of ability to compromise. It leads to political attack and divisiveness and voter disenchantment. So in light of all of that, does the Democrats moving South Carolina first in the primary system amount to a hill of beans? Will it fix our politics because it puts new voices at the forefront, or is it just another way to bring extremes into the conversation? It's, it's good for America, uh, absolutely, because it's going to make my life so much fun. Um, <laughs> and that makes it good for America. That makes it good for America. Um, which, it's going to make my life push, extremely busy. <laughs> does it? Does it? continue to push people to the extreme does it make the pushing to extremes as you noted is an absolute truth does it make it more likely yeah a little but it's so we've learned something fun. very important this morning if it's good for dr <laughs> scott huffman it's good for america <laughs> dr scott huffman director of the center for public opinion and political research and professor of political science at winthrop university in rock hill joseph bustos reporter on politics and state government for the state newspaper in columbia thank you both for the hour Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com.